Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Remember to subscribe to our free podcast so you won't miss any of our illuminating content. Here is episode 219. And what fuels addiction is fear, resentment, selfishness, and dishonesty. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. If you're ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's Firestarter is Blaine and Audrey Rinlisbacher. After struggling with a pornography addiction for more than 30 years, Blaine's prayers were answered and he was led to the principles of addiction recovery. Once sober, Blaine was committed to helping as many addicts as possible. In addition to obtaining his marriage and family therapy degree from Liberty University and working with addicts on his own, he has worked in addiction treatment centers and learned valuable therapeutic methods. As he saw these methods and principles bring insight, commitment, and sobriety to other addicts, he realized that he wanted to do more. He has now coupled the principles of addiction recovery with his therapeutic methods and experiences to develop addiction recovery groups in his coaching practice at Adore Your Spouse. Watch his journey to freedom and gain additional insight and helps for addiction at AdoreYourSpouse.com. Welcome, Blaine and Audrey. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's super fun to have you here. Actually, Blaine and Audrey, they've been on our podcast before. You can listen to episode 177 and 175 to kind of learn more about them. Of course, today from the bio, you know, we're going to do some deeper insights into addiction. And so I'm really excited to try to get into addiction recovery and the background and the inspiration behind that. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit more about like your experience with addiction? Let's kind of get the background and find out where that inspiration came from. Well, it's a it's kind of a brutal background. Uh, I was five when wow. I had my first my first memory of fantasizing about fully developed women, wow. and that was just normal. But as I've grown up and I've had six children of my own, I mean, my twelve year old when I told him the birds and the bees, he didn't know what he didn't believe me. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but now I look back and I don't know what I was exposed to or what, but that was a serious problem. And then as I got older. When I went through my teenage years, the battle was tremendous. I can't even explain the battle. Oh, my gosh. And with an addiction, I mean, the Internet wasn't out yet, but my thoughts and and I had bad actions, but I was, in all intents and purpose, quite a good kid. But I did struggle. I did. I did make some mistakes and some were bigger than others, but it was a constant battle. I mean, it was the first thing I thought about in the morning. It was the last thing I thought about when I went to bed. If I woke up in the middle of night, I think about it. I thought about it all throughout the day. I mean, it would just plagued me. And I was religious and, and spiritual. And so I would go to church every week and I would talk to my ecclesiastical leader and regularly and ask for help. And what can I do? And, and he tried to help me. I even went to my parents one time and talked to them and and I just wanted to be better. But eventually uh, I went... Uh, my wife and I got married, and she knew about it previously or prior to getting married. Then after we were married, uh, things kind of exploded in a bad way. Uh, I never had an affair. 
thank heavens. <laughs> and, uh, but it was bad. And the, then the internet came out and then addiction, uh, I mean, pornography was everywhere and it was so easy to get to. And I did things, I did everything I could think of. I remember putting so many filters on my, on my computer that I could only get to seven websites and someone would want to use my computer at work. And, and they tried it. I was like, well, can I get on that? So I was like, well, I, I, I can only get on a handful of sites and they look at me and I, I wouldn't say anything. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm an addict, you know? I mean, it's easy to say now on this side of it, but on that side of it, I was embarrassed and, and humiliated. I didn't want to tell anybody. I was yeah. so mortified that people would find out. And then in my, in probably, probably my thirties, it things started dying down. And one of the reasons it did die down is because I started, I went back to school and it was really just kind of a liberal arts school. And I wanted to learn and there was all these great authors that I'd heard of that I never ever read, like Tolstoy and Dickens and Plato and, you know, Aristotle and all the, all the, you know, tons of them. And I just never read them and I wanted to. So I started reading and that was really kind of a pivotal turn in my life because it did two things. One is it took up time. So instead of lusting and, and, and fantasizing, et cetera, with my addiction and looking at pornography, I was engaged in something that was enlightening and uplifting and good and it took time and then it also caused me to think because they were talking about these great concepts and principles and stuff and we were getting really excited about principles at the time we were just learning about them and so we spent we spent time discussing but i'd spend time thinking about those things and as i the more i studied the more i found that i could i could think deeper than i could previously for example one time i remember I wanted to act out and I thought, you know what? It's always the same. No matter what I do, it's always the same. Yeah, I know it feels different this time. It's going to be different, right? It's going to, it's going to fulfill, it's going to fill this need I have that I'm feeling I need right now, right? This, this compulsion to, 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 to use this compulsion to act out. That's going that need is going to be met. And I think, no, it's not. It never is. It's always it's always not enough. It's always lacks the luster that I think it's going to have. And that really helped that calmed things down. It didn't eliminate it. So I just kept battling it back and forth. And by the time I was 40, I was like, you know what? Uh, I think this is still a problem. I know I still act out, but when I say, I think it's still a problem. I knew it was a problem. I just, I didn't think it was that bad because it was nothing compared to like my teens and my twenties. It was so minimal. It was still there though. And I thought it was so minimal. So I had this idea. I thought, well, I'm just going to track every time I act out. That, that, then I'll know that I'll have proof. Cause I was thinking, how often do I, I don't think I do it that much. You know? So after I did it, I was floored. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, it really set me to my knees and I was just overwhelmed. And it wasn't, it wasn't so much the it wasn't so much the frequency as it was the consistency. You know, I tracked it for about four months and it was just it was regular. Wow. And I thought, dear Lord, what am I going to do? I I have no idea how to beat this. I was completely overwhelmed. And addicts are great at tearing themselves apart. I remember telling my wife once when we were first married that I, I envisioned someone smacking me, punching me in the face over and over again. And she's like, and she started crying. She's like, you do what? And I just like, well, I'm just, I'm just such a loser. I'm just, you know, I'm an addict. And uh, it just broke her heart that I would, I would, I would see myself in that way. But we we're really great at shaming ourselves. So anyway, so this happened 
And after I tracked it, it sent me to my knees and I started praying and I prayed like I'd never prayed before in my entire life. I prayed for 10 to 15 minutes in the morning and in the evening, virtually, I think every single day for four months Wow! and pleaded with God that he would save me. Cause I, not only did I believe, I believe my, my, my soul was on the line. I was just, I was scared and I was freaking out. I was, I was in despair. I had no hope. I had no idea how to beat this. So I, uh, like I said, I prayed and prayed and prayed as I prayed. I mean, I continued with life. Right. And, and I, and I was, I'd been in the, in the great books for 10 years. And so I would read, I always read and I was reading then. And one of the books I read was the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis. Now I wasn't supposed to read this book. I actually was finishing up my degree at this point. And this book wasn't, I had a C.S. Lewis class and we were supposed to read all these books. And there's one book I had already read several times. So I said, is there way we could switch this out for this other one? And they said, no, but we can do this one, <laughs> The Problem of Pain. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I've never read that one. And when I read it, he said something in there. He said, just because time has gone by doesn't mean we've, we've repented of, any, of, of something that we did wrong. And I thought, wow. And, and, and I, I knew that, but I had spent, and I, I felt like I had, and I've repented a lot. I'm telling you, I've repented a ton over the years, but it just struck me some way. And I got thinking and I kept pondering over a few days. And finally I went to Audrey and I said, I think I'm supposed to write down everything I've ever done wrong. And she says, huh? I said, I don't know why. I just feel like everything I've ever done wrong, I'm supposed to write down things that were bad, things that were uh, quote unquote sinful things that were just wrong. Like I, I spent money. I, sh- I knew I should have not have spent, right. I made a, a, a poor purchase. And I knew at the time I was making the poor purchase or I, or I was holding a resentment towards someone or something like that. So she said, do it. And I did, I wrote it all down and I went back and said, what do I do now? She's like, I have no idea. <laughs> this is your <laughs> thing, not mine. And I was like, that's right. <laughs> so I went up to the mountains and I kind of prayed. It was weird. I didn't know really what I should do there. And I just kind of left frustrated. Well, about that time, Audrey had been asked to come and speak at a convention. And she went to and spoke. And someone showed up from another state and said, man, you're, you're exactly what my group needs in my state. Will you come? Will you fly out to my state and do a presentation? She said, let me talk to my husband. And I said, you charge him $2,000, period. Now, my wife had done a lot of speaking up to that point, but she never charged a penny for it. Wow. And so, and she was going to leave for the whole, you know, like a three day weekend type thing. And I was like, you're going to charge, you're going to charge at least two grand. And, and I convinced her. And so she said $2,000 and the lady said, okay. And <laughs> <laughs> we were freaking out because she, we never had made any money on it. So I get my wife go fly uh, there and she gets into the lady's car and the lady said, Hey, how you doing today? And she turns to her and say, by the way, my husband's a recovered pornography addict. And my wife's like, why are you telling me this? I don't even know you very well. <laughs> well, over the next two days, every time they had the opportunity, she would say that to her or she would start talking more to Audrey about her husband's uh, pornography addiction and, and how he overcame it. And Audrey, in our, I don't know how many years we were married at that time, like 17, 18 years, she had never told anybody but one person and she got permission to tell that person. Never told anybody that I was an addict, not her siblings or anybody. So, but she felt all this pressure to tell her. And now we know it was God, you know, nudging her to tell her. And finally she just said, okay, fine. I'll tell her. Cause it just kept more. The pressure was building, building and building. And she couldn't let it go. And finally she says, well, my husband struggles with that. 
He's like, oh, that's terrific. And my wife's like, huh? <laughs> and the lady said, look, I'll give you a book. And if you, if, if, you, if you promise to read it, I'll give you a book. And my wife said, absolutely. So she gave her the book and it changed my life. We, got, we were reading it and we got to chapter five, I think it is. And it said, write down everything you've ever done wrong. And it was just, oh my goodness, God put this book in my lap. And he answered my prayers that I had prayed for four, over four months to save me. Wow. That's and that was the witness. All those things was, you know, that God was listening and he answered my prayers. But in addition to that, they worked. <laughs> when I did what the book said, it worked and it changed my life. That's and I, and I, I got this freedom, this freedom I've never had my entire life. That's so that's great. kind of my story and what happened and why I got involved with 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 addiction. Well, let's kind of talk about maybe what addiction is, because that's a general key thing. I think, you know, you pointed points out of how your addiction, like you thought about it all the time and stuff like that. But let's really point out like what what kind of classifies something as an addiction. Well, the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's published by the APA. That's where we get all the labels from. Um, I'm OCD, right? That comes from that book. I'm a depressive, dis- a general generalized anxiety disorder. I have major depressive disorder. All those things come from the DSM-5. In the DSM-5, they also have um, addictions, and they call them. They all call them all disorders, right? So you have a you have a dissociative disorder, or your somatic symptom and related disorders, or a, anxiety disorders because there's different kinds but they also have like under feeding and eating disorders they have anorexia nervosa they have bulimia nervosa they have binge eating disorder they have gambling in another section and so they have these different things they have substance abuse related and addictive they actually call that addictive disorders and so they go into cannabis and alcohol and all those different things opioid there's just tons of them so that's where you can get the definite you know if it's classified there it's definitely addiction but my 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 own definition is an addict is anyone who engages in bad wrong or excessive behavior repeatedly who can't stop or if they do they can't stay stopped it also is is behavior that interferes with your normal activities matter of fact i worked at a treatment center and it's just it's just standard across the board to ask several questions, about eight or ten questions, to determine the severity of it. Does the uh, addict engage in the behavior in larger amounts for longer than than longer periods of time than they meant to? Do they want to cut down or stop engaging in the behavior, but they can't manage to do so? Do they cravings and urges to end to engage in the addiction? Do they not manage to do what they should do at work, home, or school because if you because of because they're engaging in the addiction. So all those different things determine the severity. And, um, and it's, real, it's really clear to see if I look you know, my, my past, uh, I was all nine of these or how many, eight or nine or 10, how many there are. And so I had a severe addiction. Wow. And well, so, and these were things that um, weren't obvious to anyone else around you, but you could feel it like, like that pull of needing that, right? Like, Oh yeah. At, at weird times oh, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and probably the biggest thing is I knew I shouldn't do it and I still did. And I, and I wanted to stop and I, I really wanted to stop, but I didn't know how to stop. And I remember, and, and if you know an addict, they'll all say the same thing. 
you're engaging in behavior. You say, why am I doing this as you're doing it? What is wrong with me? Why am I on this again? Why am I using again as you're doing it? Yeah. Because you know it's wrong and you didn't want to do it. And you swore that morning you would never, ever do it again. You swore on your, your life and you told your spouse and you promised up and down you would, be, you would never engage in that behavior again. And three hours later, you, there you go again. Yeah. I almost feel like it's kind of an itchy feeling, you know, like there's just a scratch that you can't quite scratch. You know what I mean? Like that's, that would be, unless you do that, like you just feel that itching. Does that make sense? Like, oh yeah, it's a major compulsion. Yeah. The compulsion is tremendous. And so how do you know if you're an addict? I'll never forget. I called one of my friends after I had, I had been freed and I said, Hey, I, I did this. He knew that uh, he actually had known about me. I told him a few years before that. And uh, he said, well, I'm struggling with the same thing. And so I called him and told him, and I said, I said, so I think you should do this program. He says, I'm not an addict. I said, you're not. He says, oh, no. I said, well, then stop. I said, if you never start again, then you're not an addict. He says, well, I'm not an addict. I'll never do it again. And he never did. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, that's so awesome. <laughs> but you know, he, he didn't want to, he didn't want to be classified as an addict. I didn't either, but he really wasn't. He actually stopped and didn't restart, didn't resume the behavior. And it's been like six, six years now. Wow. That's pretty but awesome. if you, if you can't stay stopped, then you know, you're an addict. Yeah. If you continue to eat way more than you know, you should, and you know, you are, and you know, you shouldn't be eating that, but you have to eat again, right. Or you have to gamble or you have to, look at pornography or whatever those addictions are, right? Drugs and alcohol and stuff, then yeah. And you can't stay stopped and you definitely are an addict. So what do you feel like addictions are so prevalent today? I think, you know, we're seeing a rise in all that stuff. I mean, you talked about the internet being a huge component to that, but I mean, we're seeing addiction everywhere in all kinds of things, Mm -hmm. even in technology, you know? Oh, I know. Gaming. There are people that are addicted to gaming. Yeah. Well, I think the question that needs to be asked in response to your question is, is addiction a disease? Now, like I said, the DSM-5 classifies many of those as disorders, right? And, and, and the whole mental health industry has become extremely scientific and, and they want to be like medical and they're doing a lot of good. Um, they're doing a lot of good, but they classify it they classify these things as diseases, right? That's why. So in a, in a, in a, in a drug a treatment center, you can actually get, I mean, they charge a lot of money. I think they charge three to $5,000 a day, but you can go there and insurance will pay for a bunch of it because it's, it's in the DSM five. Yeah. But in the Alcoholics Anonymous book, they say that it's a spiritual disease. They say it's a disease. I had this out and then I, I misplaced it. Let's see if I can find it real quick. It, so it's a spiritual disease. And they say we were also sick mentally and physically as well. But once we got the spiritual in line, then the physical and the mental cleared up. That's pretty amazing. And I believe it's predominantly a spiritual. I used to believe them 100%. It was only a spiritual disease. And then as I did more clinical work and more study, I realized there's other things that are, are the, that are compounding that. So one of the problems with, with the mental health industry, and probably the biggest problem by far with the mental health industry is it's devoid of God or spirituality. And the reason that's so harmful, especially for addicts, is because 
like the, the, the Alcoholics Anonymous says it's a spiritual disease and you have to find it with spiritual tools. Well, when people come into a clinic, they'll do a biopsych social. I did tons of these biopsych social. We want to know about your biology, your psychology and your and your social, right? Who you live with, all that stuff. Uh, are there addicts living with you? You know, all that going to all those things. Were you abused and there's have trauma in your life? We go through all those things. But they don't talk about the spiritual. If it's true what Alcoholics Anonymous is saying, and I do believe it is, it's primarily a spiritual disease, then you have to find it with spiritual tools. And if you don't have that, and if the whole mental health industry is void of that, that's why I had a friend go to a, because I talked to another friend about this after I, I, I found the solution, and he'd gone to a counselor for three years straight every week and paid. And then he joined support groups and he paid for some of those support groups and other support groups. He And they were programs or whatever. And he paid for those and went through those. And then he went through other ones as well that weren't paid for. And at the end of the day, he was just as addicted as he was when he started it all. Wow. Because it's, because it's a spiritual component. He was missing that. Yeah. Well, and that's really one thing. I mean, we're talking about pornography, some people feel this way about drinking or drugs or whatever, is that some people will blame like the spiritual component for making us feel guilty about that. But I think that having that definition of like an addiction is something like you're thinking of when you should be thinking about other things, correct? I mean, that's, and and so avoiding like blaming it, I mean, it really goes way beyond that. I mean, it goes, well, I mean, we're not making people feel guilty that they have addictions. It's something. They feel guilty because they have it. Yeah. It's, in, it's inbred. Yes. Yeah. It, it just is. And people will, I know that is one side of the argument, but it's not true. And here's why. Do you know what feeds addiction? What fuels it? What is that? Most people don't know. Yeah. <laughs> most, clinici- most, most clinicians I've talked to don't know. And what fuels addiction is fear, resentment selfishness and dishonesty. Wow. So it doesn't matter what addiction you have. That's why I can help anybody, even though they're not a pornography addict. If they're addicted to anything, I can help them because like they say in the AA book, those are just the symptoms. The root of the cause is selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And so until you, you've gone through those steps, the 12 steps, which are the 12 principles of addiction recovery, the ones outlined in the AA book, then you're not going to get that healing and you're not going to be able to do it. Now, if you think about the antidote to those four things, what's the antidote to dishonesty? It's to be honest. It's just, yeah. it's just to be honest, right? It's, yeah. it's very forward. What's the, what's the antidote to resentment? It's, and I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, I'm trying to. So don't feel like, if you don't know, it's okay. I ask this all the time in groups and people are like, we don't know. And I'm like, okay, I'll just tell you. The, the antidote to resentment is forgiveness. And what's the antidote to selfishness? selflessness and the antidote to fear is faith. And so those are all spiritual answers. Yeah, they really but are. But as like and but and so that's why. And and when people do that, all of a sudden the addiction disappears when they do the steps properly. But I have seen that it through like I said, through more research and, and working with people that the biopsych social is impacting people. It's making it harder if, could you do it if you only did the spiritual and you only did the 12 steps? Absolutely. I believe anybody could. But it will make it so much easier if you have the therapeutic techniques to help back you up in the biopsych social. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah. It just makes it way easier. And and it makes sense of why therapy maybe not be working as well as it used to is that we have taken that spiritual component out, you know, the higher power type of kind of idea for sure. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Awesome. Great. So what do you feel like your overall paradigm change has been surrounding addiction? And then I want to get into the principles, but definitely. That it's not a mystery anymore. I mean, I, it is, it's, it is so fun. I challenge anyone. I have no idea why I'm addicted. I said, I, I guarantee why I know exactly why you're addicted. No, you don't. No one can know. Why can't I stop? I, I can tell, I can pinpoint every single time and I'll, and, and I'll say, give me a scenario and I'll tell you why you relapsed. <laughs> and I can draw it right back to one of those four things, resentment, fear, selfishness, or, or dishonesty. Every single time self pity is a form of selfishness and people don't. So, you know, there's a lot of self pity to go on with addicts as well. Yeah. And that fuels their, their things. But I'll have people say, well, no, no, I didn't do anything. And, you know, and I'll say, okay, well, I can start asking them questions and I go deeper and deeper. And then all of a sudden one of those four pop up every time. So that would be the biggest paradigm is it's quite simple, but it seems like no one has a clue what's going on with, with addiction in and out of the, of the, of the professionals, both addicts and, and people that help. I know there are some, and I know there's some great people, but, but I keep getting this from people. I mean, even the treatment center I worked in, I was floored. They kept saying, you're talking too much about the steps, Blaine. <laughs> I was like, I'm a recovered addict. You're not. So don't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell me I'm talking too much about the steps. And I kept getting in trouble. You're bringing up God too much. I was like, do you want them to heal or not? Aren't, aren't they paying us to help heal them? So I need wow. to talk to them about God. I mean, and I, I can, we, can, we can phrase it under higher power. That's fine. But they need to heal. But so often... I mean, I had texts that would overhear my uh, our, my groups, and they said, "Boy, it's sure nice to hear the steps." Because a lot of the people that get in the industry are recovered addicts, as far as the texts were concerned. A lot of the texts, not the clinicians, not nearly as much, but mainly, mostly the the texts. And they said, "It's sure nice to hear someone talk about the steps finally." Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I actually had a lady that, and and here's the thing too, which is boggles my mind in in support groups. The support groups, the one thing they're supposed to do is help people through the 12 steps. I had a lady in one of my groups, and she had, she'd been in AA for 18 years. She had two sponsors, and she'd only ever been through the first three steps. Well, that's interesting. And that's like going through public school, and, and you only get to addition. You never do subtraction, multiplication, division, fractions, algebra, or anything else. You're just stuck. Yeah, and then wonder well, why, why you can't do algebra, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, and yeah. wonder why she can't be, why she's still an addict. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, what so are really, the tools? The mystery is gone. Oh yeah. So tell us the tools of overcoming that addiction permanently. I mean, we see people relapse okay. all the time. So yes. Well, the, I've broken. There's twelve steps, which is that you know the, every program is based off the AA. I use only the AA book when I work with people. I don't care what their addiction is because that's the book that God sent to me and it worked. And I understand, like I told you before, that that, that the addiction is just a symptom. The cause, the root cause, are always the same. So I've broken the twelve steps into three phases or three stages. The first stage is submission. The second stage is the cleanse, and the third stage is maintenance. So the first step is we admitted we were powerless over our addiction. I changed that. It says alcohol, but, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. And, and that our lives had become unmanageable. 
This is the hardest step. I was 40 before I got to this step. Why, why didn't I do it when I was seven or 12? I don't know. Pride. I was just stupid. I didn't think I had a problem, whatever. Right. It was just, you know, when I got married, everything would be fine. Da, 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 right. Yeah. And so this is the hardest one for people to really believe they have a problem. When you really admit you're powerless and, and over your addiction, your addiction controls you, you don't control it. And that your lives become unmanageable. Now there's functioning addicts out there, right? They go to work and stuff like that, but they know that this section, this part of their life is a mess and it's unmanageable and it's affecting their relationships. It's affecting their career as the worse it gets over time, but it is definitely unmanageable. So that's one step two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. People ask me all the time, are you saying I have, I have, people down. Are you telling me we have to believe in God? <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. The book is telling you that. And I said, no, look, isn't it worth it? Wouldn't it be worth it to believe in God to be free from addiction? I've had some people that, that were so atheist. And when we talked about it and we, and we showed a little bit of proof that God exists, like how can you uh, eat food and, it, and then it digest and it not put a hole in your stomach? You know, how, how come the yeah. sun comes up and how come there's 5,000 other, 5 million other reasons why there's a higher power, right? I mean, there's just so many reasons. So I give them a little bit of evidence. You know, how, how do you know what you should do? Even though it might put you in danger, how do you know you should do that? And how come none of the other animals on the entire planet, none of them have that same thing, but man, you know, and so they, it gets them thinking. But yes, you've got to believe that greater a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. And if you think about an addiction and what lengths that addicts go to to get to get involved in their addiction and the risks they take, that's that's insane. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the sanity. Step three is made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Now that's really important, and that's actually italicized in the book as we understood Him. Because some people grow up, and they might grow up in a very Christian home, right? Quote, unquote, very Christian home. Yeah. And their dad beats them all the time. And they're like, and the dad's a preacher or whatever. Or the dad just goes to church every week and, you know, and they're like, hey, I don't want anything to do with this. That's God. No, thanks. Well, that's not God. That's a, that's a demented or a distorted or a broken person that's, that's doing things, quote, unquote, in the name of God. So you've got to make, okay, what would God be like? What would a higher power, would it be all loving? Yeah, I think it'd be all loving and it'd be all knowledgeable and he would care about me and da, 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 da. And then you can turn your will over. But it's an an action, it's a a conscious action that you take to turn your will. So those first three steps are the submission stage. The next stage is the cleanse. And if you're religious, it's called repentance. If you're not, it's called the cleanse. (laughs) But it's the same thing. And the step four is to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. You have to write down everything you've ever done wrong. Now, I had one guy I was working with, and he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, I did that. I said, did you write down everything? Because he said the steps didn't work for him. I said, did you write down every single thing you've ever done wrong? He said, yeah. I said, outside of your addiction, he says, we're supposed to do it for the things that didn't pertain to our addiction? Because he was an alcoholic. And I said, yeah, like, if you cheated on your wife, if you cheated on your taxes, if you stole something, anything you've ever done wrong has to go. And he's like, oh, that's why they didn't work. He kept saying it. That's why it didn't work. He's yeah. freaking out. It was incredible. I don't have time to tell the story. It was absolutely remarkable, uh, the healing that took place in that man. 
So you make that inventory of everything you've ever done, done wrong. Step five, you have to admit it to God, to yourself, and to another human being. These are hard steps. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sugarcoat it. These are hard, but they're so much easier than being addicted year after year. I mean, they're so much easier, but they're hard and they're embarrassing. They're very humbling to tell someone everything you've done wrong. You know, most people, when they get to step four, they'll say, well, I could never write everything done wrong. Are you kidding me? There's not enough paper in the world. Yes, there is. And it's not as bad as they're thinking, but they know they've done a lot of bad things they haven't fixed. And when they get to step five, I could never do that. And they say in the book, we tried to find a softer way, an easier way, but it didn't work. Whoever cut corners, they, the steps didn't work for them. They weren't free. They were still addicted because they hadn't done it right. Wow. You've got to do them with all your heart. Well, and do you feel like that that's how some people, you know, they may go through the 12 steps, but then they relapse? I mean, is that the reason why? Is that they're not doing it correctly? No. No. If they go through the 12 steps and they don't get the sobriety, it's because they didn't do them right. Relapse is a different thing. I'll talk about it in a little bit. Oh, okay. Okay. Because they didn't do them thoroughly. They skimped through. They jumped over. They didn't write everything down. They didn't confess everything. I remember one guy in one group that I was, it was before I was in, in clinical. I was actually just attending a group. And one guy said, I said, that's it. I'm so sick of being addicted. I'm like 35 or 40. I can't remember how old he said he was. He said, so I just, I just went and I confessed everything. I had confessed before he said, but I never, I mean, I would do it and kind of leave out some important details, you know, that were too embarrassing. And he says, I just laid it all out on the table. And he says, I was freed. He said, after I finished the steps, I was freed. I was like, that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the funny. same thing. When you do them right, you get free. Wow. So step six, we're entire, entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Like, are you selfish? Are you dishonest? Are you, are you uh, narcissistic? Are those kinds of things? Those are character defects. And you have to have, you have to be willing to have God remove those. You have to be ready to. Seven is you humbly ask him to remove those shortcomings. So those were actually quite easy steps for me because I was like, sure, I don't want this crap anymore. It may be harder for other individuals. Uh, step eight, made a list of all the persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them. And that's easy because you got step four with everything you'd ever done wrong. And a bunch of those things or some of those things you did on step four were with other people, how you would hurt them or taken advantage of them or whatever. Well, now you got to make amends and you make that list on step eight and you're willing to make amends, but you don't make amends yet. You're just willing. I have a lot of people that go, they'll start doing step four and they want to jump to step nine and start making amends. It's like, slow down. We don't skip steps. <laughs> we do every step a hundred percent with all our hearts. So we get the, we get the prize at the end. We don't skip. We don't rush. We go as quickly as we can without rushing, but we do them honestly and thoroughly and so we just go through one by one. So we get to step nine, you go make direct amends. Unless the person would be, would cause more injury to someone. Now I had, I've worked with a lot of guys, well, and ladies, but I had a lot, well, when I say guys, it's both, but that would say, well, I could never tell my spouse I had an affair. Well, that I don't think, you'd want to talk to your, your, your pastor, your therapist, your, your bishop, whoever it is your sponsor, when you go through the steps, you want to have someone helping you. Uh, I didn't, it would have been way easier if I had someone helping me, but, but you don't want, I think in most cases you need to tell your spouse you had an affair. 
there's a maybe sometimes when you shouldn't, it would cause more damage. But most of, now, is it going to hurt them if you told them? Of course it is. Is it going to hurt your relationship? Well, you already hurt your relationship, yes. But you have to do it to heal. It, it's just required. But that can be that's a little bit touchy. But we don't we don't not confess something or make amends because we're scared. We don't, we don't do that because it's, you know what I mean? We don't approach someone because it would hurt them. It's, see, it's a whole transformation. We're no longer thinking of ourselves. We're thinking of the other people. So you have to make amends. But most people, I mean, I, when I, when I read that and, and, and as I read, I read the book a bunch of times, but my, my thought is, okay, this, this man abused, sexually abused his daughter for 12 years. Right. Yeah. And wow. then disappeared. And then, 10 years later, he found the steps and now he's, he's healed. He's going to go rush in there and Hey, sweetie, I'm so sorry. No way, man. That would, that would, could destroy her, you know? So yeah. I think it's more of a, an agree, uh, grievous or agrarious act. Those that are really, that would cut that you'd have to be careful of. Yeah. And some people have died, you know, you want to make amends, but they're dead. Well, there's ways you can do that and, and you can do a living amends and things like that. But it's really important to have someone help you through these steps. But that's the second stage is the cleanse. You've got a clean house. Because, you know, what is what does the Neil Armstrongs of the world do after they won seven Tour de France? What do they do? You remember what he did after after he won the seventh one, like a year or two after that? No, I don't. <laughs> Tell me what he did. He came out to... he came out and told the whole world that he cheated. That he oh, was yeah. doping. Yeah. Why why? He's got the crown. He's got all the medals. Why would he come and tell everybody? Because it's eating him alive. Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening to addicts. It's eating us alive, these things we've done wrong, and then we can't let it go. And when we can't let it go, we have we can't handle that pain. We've got to cover it up. So we need to do something to cover it up. And it's a bottle. It's a joint. It's an image. It's a X-rated movie. It's food. It's whatever our addiction is but we have to cover that pain up. I had one lady I was working with and she was raped in her own home. She just bought a home and someone followed her and went in there, raped her inside her brand new home. Wow. I mean, talk about hell. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I was like, you've got to let it go. Cause she was full of one of the four. She was full of resentment. She couldn't, she just loathed this person that did this evil act to her. I said, you have to let it go. She said, I can't, I said, what is it costing you? in your life right now, if you don't let it go, she says two bottles of wine every day. Wow. I said, exactly. Yeah. Now it's not easy. I got some tools that I found that can really help people. Like I, I had her do as well. And, but, but, but you have to cover up that pain. If you clean house, you've exposed everything to the light. Everything's above board and you're, you're, you're clean again. You're, you're not broken. You're healed. And that's where you get your freedom. When you're done with step nine, you're free. Yeah. The, 12, the, the last three steps don't heal you. It's the first nine that heal you. Well, and I kind of wonder if that's why working with somebody is so beneficial, because I think when we're by ourselves, sometimes we don't clean house quite like we need to. Do you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes we yeah. do hang on to the side corners of the stuff mm -hmm. and then that will help us. I mean, that will create a relapse or whatever that we were discussing before. Look, or I totally get it. I, I remember going to have to confess and I was so embarrassed. I actually had a relapse. And I had to go clean this up and, and confess it. Oh my gosh, I was, it was so embarrassing, but I had to do it. 
Because if I didn't do it, I was going to act out again yeah. and continue to act out. Yeah, it's that honesty. And, and having someone by your side is huge. So having someone on your side that knows what they're doing, that knows the steps, but I think the clinical could be very beneficial too. It really can. Uh, and maybe you need two people to help you. That maybe you get a maybe you get a, a counselor to help you, and you also have a sponsor, and the counselor is helping you with the psychosocial, the biopsychosocial, right? But it's really important that you get. I I think it would just it would have been way easier for me. I think I would have avoid, avoided the relapses I had had I had someone in my corner, yeah. like you mentioned. Before we go on, please listen to this message. If you enjoy this content, you can help us with as little or as much as you'd like over at patreon.com backslash the luminous mind. These funds help us to continue to produce illuminating content with needed equipment and resources to spread the message of changing the paradigm of education. We appreciate all the ways our listeners help us continue this effort through patreon.com backslash the luminous mind by expanding exclusive content, giving away gifts, and giving patrons first seen products on patreon.com backslash the luminous mind. Mind with Blaine and Audrey Rindlisbacher, who's helping with addiction healing. Okay, Audrey, what are some crucial ways that a spouse can help with any addiction? Well, that's a that's a great question. The first five years we were married were just really brutal, and and I didn't think we were going to make it. And and I look back now, and I realize that part of the reason that it was so hard was because I didn't have any idea how to handle it. And so I did some things that made the situation worse. And I've noticed since then, as I've um, talked with women and kind of been in these circles more that, and, and it's not that husbands are always addicts and women aren't. And, and certainly the things that we're talking about today apply to anyone who loves any addict, right? Yeah. But it's easy to make the situation worse with your the way that you manage the situation. So um, it reminds me of there was there were these two women that were friends and the one woman had a husband who was a pornography addict and she knew she had another friend who just discovered that her husband had a pornography addiction. So she went over to this woman's house. The woman told me this on one of our calls to talk to this friend and she was just feeling devastated and betrayed, of course, you know, an emotional course. But as they started talking, somehow the word masturbation came up. And this woman just lost it and she just ran home crying. And the reason for that is, is fear and ignorance, which really go hand in hand. You know, we are far less likely to be afraid of a situation or uh, a circumstance or whatever it is. If we understand it better, if we're knowledgeable about it. So the very first thing I would tell anybody who knows an addict and most of us know and love somebody in our lives who's addicted is to get your fear under control by learning about addiction. You know, everything that Blaine has taught, grab the Alcoholics Anonymous book for yourself and read through it. It is really genuinely one of my very favorite books in the whole world. 
Um, it has taught me so much about life and spirituality, and it's just amazing. And the more you understand addiction, the less it will scare you and the less helpful you'll feel and the less likely you'll be to manage the situation wrongly. And so that kind of leads into the second recommendation that I would make, and that is to not horribleize and shame that person. Addicts are really great at self-pity and at really um, self-destructive thinking. They're very, they're, they're much harder on themselves than probably anybody else could be. And they're very ashamed of what they're doing. And they, they know that it's wrong and they, they often, they don't want to behave that way. And so it's super important for us as the people that love them to help discern for them that they are not their behavior. This is something that of, of, of anything I ever did in our marriage, Blaine, Blaine often says that was that really kind of that really was the thing that helped him the very most was that I constantly affirmed to him just because I believed it, that he was above it, that he could overcome it, that that he was not his behavior, that he was not this addiction and uh, just believing in him, but also separating that behavior and not shaming him, not saying things like you're a horrible person, you are an addict, you this and you that and because they're not. They are not their behavior. And just like any other bad behavior that we don't like with our children or our friends or our boss or anything, it's important that we make that distinction as much for for them as for ourselves so that we don't get, it's so easy to, and and I think this is where a lot of divorce comes into play is that the spouse is full of fear and ignorance and then they shame that person in their own mind so much that they can't distinguish the valuable person that's behind the addiction. And so they leave. Yeah. Well, and I have a follow-up question, and I probably should have asked this first, but what happens if you're yeah. a spouse of an addict who doesn't mm-hmm. want to seek help? Is there something you can do to help them get help? Like, you know, because it's stressful on the family and, you know, on the spouse itself, right? Mm-hmm. There's a couple different parts to that. Number one, there are plenty of people who, and, and this is why we do what we do, and this is why Blaine is is working with with addicts um, in his practice as well as couples, because there are many people who would like to get help and don't have tried, feel like they've tried everything, and that's how we felt. We felt like we tried everything, and so there are people who who would be willing if they really believed it was going to help. Yeah. So that's part of it. Um, there are also different scenarios. So sometimes if there, it depends on the addiction and it depends on how negatively it's impacting you and your family. You know, if I had been in a situation where my daughters were at risk, I, I would have, I don't, I would have tried to help Blaine while we were separated that maybe it would have eventually ended in divorce. So, so, so different circumstances are different. In our case, it never, you know, it was never dangerous to the family and it wasn't dangerous to me, but it made Blaine very unhappy and, and hurt his self-confidence and affected his life negatively and affected me negatively because I felt betrayed. And so it was a constant source of pain for both of us, but there wasn't any real danger involved. And so those years when he felt pretty helpless and he wasn't really actively seeking help, we just kind of went on with life and I tried to keep that. There was a moment, and maybe this is part of what you're asking. There was a moment, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years into our marriage when I finally had to sit down with myself and ask myself the question, was I willing to spend the rest of my life with an addict? 
because we didn't have answers. And better, it was it was certainly milder, but it was still there, like just this thorn, you know. And I just decided that, you know, I, I sought a lot of help from God. And as painful as it was, I decided that this this was not doing damage to me or to my children and that I had made a commitment to him and that I had said, you know, kind of for better or for worse. And this was worse and I didn't like it, but I, I had made a commitment and that, that he wasn't his addiction. He was so much more than that. And that even though I didn't like that, he would act out periodically that, that our relationship was more than that. It was bigger than that. It didn't have to be that, our whole lives revolved around that. And, and one of the things that Blaine talks about and works with people on in regards to this kind of stuff is codependency. Uh, because the, w- the fourth point that I was going to make about, about being helpful to an addict is simply that if th- that you have to focus on, on your self, you've got to engage in consistent self care and you've got to engage in your own life mission find your own purpose in life and really get engaged there. Because if you don't, then what by default, what will happen over time is that your emotional life and your behavior will become controlled by the addict's behavior, Mm -hmm. your emotional life. You know, you'll be emotionally up and down depending on how they're doing. And that can lead to codependency, which is, which is just, I mean, really just the, you know, you just lose all sense of self. And so each individual needs to kind of gauge for themselves. And this where this is where outside help from, you know, an expert like Blaine or other people can be very valuable in helping someone who's struggling with these kinds of sensitive questions for themselves about in their particular circumstances, what would really be best. But in the majority of cases, I would say that spouses owe it to their spouse to stick around because because they already hate themselves for engaging in this behavior. And as long as they can live a decently normal life, as long as it's kind of medium to mild on the scale and it doesn't mean that everything's out of control all the time, I feel like we owe that to them. We, and so often what happens is that unconditional love leads to healing Yeah. because you keep valuing them and so then they value themselves and they're more likely to want to get help because you didn't walk out. This is, let me tell you this last point I was going to make. Um, there's a story, there's a book called um, healing your marriage when trust is broken. It's by a, have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't. It's, it's by a woman named Cindy Bial. This is her story. It's, oh, it's so amazing. She starts out the book by telling all these amazing experiences about how she met her husband and how they knew they were, you know, meant for each other. And they are both Christian and he actually became a pastor and they had been married. I don't know. They had two or three kids and they had been married maybe eight to 10 years, something like that. And he was a pastor and they had just moved and he had just taken an even better pastor position in this new church. And one day he came home and he sat her down and he said, Cindy, I've got to tell you something. She said, what is it? He said, not only do I have a rampant pornography addiction, but I have had multiple affairs over the course of our marriage. And now one of the women that I had an affair with is pregnant with my child. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So 
of course she and this 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 book is so unbelievable. So she shares kind of her journey of what she experiences in those first few moments and those first few weeks of the pain that she's in and she's just of course reeling and and trying to get her feet back on the ground and figure out what this means for her and her children and what she ought to do and of course she has every justification to walk away and 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 everything and so she she travels home. She goes back to her parents' house and she's her parents are religious as well. And um, she's, you know, kind of pacing the floor, trying to figure out what to do. And finally, after she's been there a little while, maybe a week or so, her mom makes an appointment for her to see their pastor. And so she doesn't really want to go, but she, you know, just to kind of appease her mom, you know, she decides, okay, I'll, I'll go meet with him. So she goes and meets with him and she just, she pours her heart out. She tells the whole story. She, you know, she just, she just weeps and weeps. And of course she's just heartbroken and he can see that and he hears her out. And when she's all done talking, this is what he says to her. He says, I would respect you if you felt that you needed to remove yourself from your marriage. What you've endured is very hard, but you are not a fool if you stay and be a part of the redemptive work in a man's life. Yeah. Well, and, and it can be very then, powerful, right? I mean, it can affect, yes, it, can, yes. it can be an amazing experience for both of you if oh, you let yes. that happen. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And you'll find that there's a lot of growing that you can do as a person um, in a relationship with an addict. And there's a lot of ways in which you couldn't grow if you walked away. It is, It demands that you be more. It demands that you be better. It demands a level of, of patience and endurance and dependency on God that that an easier situation wouldn't demand. And, you know, she talks about how she's on her way back home and she feels that God is saying to her, do you trust me? And she says, I know what that would mean. She says, I knew that saying yes would mean staying in a marriage that was deeply wounded and nearly destroyed. It would mean forgiving a man for breaking his marriage vows over and over again. It would mean remaining in a trustless marriage until Chris could build that trust back up, which may take the rest of his life. But after wrestling in prayer and remember the promises that God had made to me in scripture, I answered yes, through tears, through pain, through heartache, but also through hope. And so there are a lot of spiritual lessons for the person who's willing to endure, to suffer, as Jesus said, with those that suffer, and to engage in the redemptive work of another human being. And, and a lot of what that calls for on our side is a, is a solid understanding of the principle of forgiveness, to really get that it's a conditional promise that we can't be forgiven unless we forgive. And that forgiveness is not allowance, and it's not being boundaryless. It is a spiritual work that we do for ourselves to stay in a good place so that we can continue to offer love to an individual who's suffering. And the person who says, you know, well, I'm an addict, but I don't, I don't want help or I don't need help, may just need more time, mm-hmm. more forgiveness, more unconditional love to get to the point that the truth about that person is probably that they feel so broken. They don't feel they deserve forgiveness. They don't feel they deserve to be healed. They don't think that ever they feel that they're beyond hope. 
Yeah, I love how you were keeping it positive. Like, you're better than this. You know, I know that you have higher ideals than this. And maybe that's a way to keep like reaffirming that to them. And then maybe they would finally seek help. I don't anyway. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. you. And they're not. Oh, you're fine. They're not stupid. They feel your resentment. They know when you're being unforgiving and holding a grudge. They know when you're angry inside at them. And so the spiritual maturity, the spiritual growth that it requires to handle this situation properly is, it's a call. I think it's a, it's an opportunity if we're up for it, that we don't want, that we didn't ask for, and that we don't always manage the right way, but we can definitely strive to rise to the occasion and God's going to be there. And, and we'll find that we're, we're better people for our willingness. And that's really the key. And, and, and Blaine talked a lot about that, that the AA book over and over and over again. The key for the addict is willingness, and the key for the, the loved one is willingness. Just like Cindy, a willingness to let God be in charge, to stick around and see what was going to happen, to be willing to do the redemptive work in her husband's life with him. Yeah. Well, and it can be healing for both of you. I, I love the 12-step tr- yeah. program myself because, I mean, I don't yeah. have any addictions or anything, but I did see like a lot of us do have something that we hang on to. And just because some people's yeah. uh, addiction or problems are so much more apparent than ours may be doesn't mean that we're, you know, totally perfect and we have nothing yeah. to learn. <laughs> so, yep, yep. And you'll, you'll find that the journey to understand it, just, it it just, you just grow as a person. You just, you just are such a better person for it. So that's fantastic. Great. Thank you for coming on to our show. Well, and you talked about going to ecclesiastical, you know, helpers, but what's the difference between that and maybe getting more professional help? I mean, we, we want that spiritual component in there, but how does that not work for people? (laughs) Well, like they're just proven therapeutic techniques that help people, that really help people heal psychological things, social things, right? Yeah. And they're just, I mean, I teach, I teach healthy coping skills, how to cope with things, because that's the struggle. See, what happens Mm -hmm. when when something goes wrong, we go to fear, we go to selfishness or self-pity, right? We go to, we become dishonest or, or we choose that actually, or we choose a resentment, and that's our no, normal way of coping. Well, those coping skills don't work. That that fuels addiction. So our so even if we've gone through the nine steps and we've created our freedom, if we don't watch for those things, and that's where I slipped on step 10, actually step 10 is what we're talking about now, then you will fall back. But if you've got these healthy coping skills, it makes it easier to do step 10. Yeah. But ultimately, if you if you submitted right, if you really listened to your your ecclesiastical leader and you really submitted to God, you would never have a relapse. But we're human. (laughs) And and let's talk about those relapses. I mean, that happens a lot, right? I mean, how how do you create that? Well, here's the thing. What are those tools to help us so that we don't relapse? Well, here's the thing. I I know we're getting short on time, but when I was in. When I was in the clinic, I would, and I would run my groups. I would say, okay, by the raise of hand, how many people have done the steps, the 12 steps? And almost no hands would ever go up, and except for mine. I'd raise my hand. And I was like, okay, how many have sobriety in here? And I'd raise my hand, and no one else would. I was like, do you think there's a coincidence here? <laughs> but <laughs> but every once in a while, I'd have someone raise their hand who's been through all the 12 steps, and he's sitting there or she's sitting there. I've been through them all. 
some of those were they really didn't go through the 12 steps. They, they said they did, but they didn't do it thoroughly. So when I asked them questions, they realized, oh, I didn't really do the steps thoroughly. Well, they didn't work, okay? So you hadn't really been through the 12 steps. But there are some people that said, yes, I went through all 12 steps. I was like, well, what are you doing here? One guy said, I mean, he had so many tattoos, it's hard to see his face. I mean, they were wow. <laughs> up on his neck, you know, right under his jaw. I mean, everywhere on his forehead, huge tattoos. Wow. He said, guys, the steps work. He said, I had two and a half years sobriety, and then I quit doing step 10. I had another guy that says, guys, the steps work. I had 18 years of sobriety, and I quit doing step 10. I just got selfish. And I just kind of said, the hell with it. Excuse the French. I'm quoting him. but And he just gave in and ended back up in rehab because oh. they quit doing step 10. So step 10 is huge. It's a, step 10 is continue to take a personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So what does step 10 say? It, in the book, the AA book, they explain how to do the steps. Step 10 says this. This thought I won't tell you what the thought is, but this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory, continue to set, a, set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So when we did steps, you know, four through nine, we were cleaning up the past. That's what they're talking about. It says we have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. So step 10, 11, 12 are the maintenance phase or stage is what I've called them. The first nine, the first nine heal you. You are freed of your addiction after you've finished step nine. You just are. It's incredible. It's the most, it's the best feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. I walked around for months thinking, holy cow, I can't believe this. I kept telling my wife, I can't believe how I feel. I can't believe how it was like, they say you're, you're placed in a position of neutrality. You know, someone can put, put, someone can, I could walk in and someone could be looking at pornography and I was like, well, that's great. And walk away. it doesn't even faze me. Wow. It is unbelievable when you've done it right. But, but we're human, right? Yeah. And we have these ways of being, these patterns and, and these coping skills, poor coping skills, lots of times of how we handle things when something goes wrong in our lives. And so it says here for the rest of our lives, we have to do step 10, 11, 12. And step 10 is continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And I really don't have time to get into all those things, but there's little things that you can do to wake. One is wise mind. This is from dialectic behavior therapy, DBT, we call it. And, and it's how to get into wise mind and to stop and create a window and to think before you act instead of because people's impulse control is so poor. Addicts' impulses are, control are so poor that you've got to slow down and think. And there's just different things that you can do that's going to make step 10 easier. Uh, step 11 is thought through prayer meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So that's really strengthening your relationship with your higher power daily. If you believe in, in any kind of holy writ, you need to be reading it every day. Wow. You should be praying or meditating every day. You should be serving. You should have, be grateful and have a gratitude and have a, a, you know, a mentality or an air of you, about you of gratitude. You, sh- you know, just different things that are going to contribute to your spirit and your relationship with your higher power. And specifically to ask him, how can you carry out his will today? Mm-hmm. Each day you ask that. 
And then step 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, step 12 is you share the message. And the reason you share the message is because all the clinicians, right, all the professionals, unless they've been through it, don't know what we're going through. <laughs> so they can say, just stop. What's your problem? You know, people, tell, my wife's like, why do you keep doing it? What's your problem? I don't know. Why can't I just stop? But if you've been through it, then you, then like, oh, you understand. It's a whole different game, ball yeah. game. And so for five years almost before I didn't work in clinic for a long time, I would just help. And I still sponsor people. I met with a sponsee last night and I, and, and we got to continue to give back and help people, other people. And here's what they say in the book. This is why this is so critical. And this is your get out of dogs. This is your, your emergency button. If you are, if you've gone through the nine steps and you've been healed and you feel that compulsion to act out again, and you're concerned, you're going to take another drink or get on the internet or whatever it is. It says this practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from a drinking, they say drinking or your addiction, as intensive work with other addicts. It works when other activities fail. So the key thing to do if you are feeling the compulsion is to think about somebody else. You go find somebody to help or you're going to act out again. Wow. So it's really not like a program that you can go through. I mean, I've heard parents like say that, oh, my son went through a program. It's not a program you can just go through and that's the end of it, right? I mean, there really does there. I mean, we've kind of talked about that. There's there's habits, daily habits that you have to do continually to keep yourself free from your addictions. Exactly. And let's say you don't, I don't have time to do that, Blaine. Well, how much time did you take doing your addiction every day? Oh, you're right. <laughs> okay. I'll, see, step 10, I do in about a minute every night. Well, and I once... just, Real quick. Was I resentful? Was I fearful? Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? If I was, I'd fix it right then. Usually, actually, I catch myself in at, when I do it. I can feel the resentment. I practiced it enough. I can feel when I'm starting to get resentful yeah. or selfish or whatever. And so I, I stop it and I fix it right then. I let go of the resentment or whatever. And then step 11, I do a half hour every day. I pray in the morning and night. I also, I also read scripture every day and things like that. So, well, and if you're doing ahead. it all the time, it's going to be quick. If you're always yes. asking yourself these things and you're going through these, these steps, it's not going to take a long time. It's when you relapse and you have to go back and start all over again. Correct. I mean, you know what I mean? Well, like the, well that was an excellent point, but let me clarify the last thing you said, because you're right. Because when I did my, when I did my daily inventory yesterday, I took care of anything. So to, my day, daily inventory today is for only today. Yeah. It's not, you so know, if you, months ago, <laughs> if you relapse, if you relapse, you don't start back at step one. Yeah. All you do is fix it. So you'd go with through step four through nine for that one thing you did yesterday or today or whenever it was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it is a lot and faster. Then, and, you, and, and you'd go through steps four through nine with one thing. See, when you first do them, if you're like me, you're 40 years old, how many things did you do wrong? That line list was huge. I think I had seven pages, single space. Of things I did, both sides. Wow. And I'm a good guy. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't the devil. I'm not the devil. Sure, I had problems, but I'm you know, I wasn't evil. But we just you know, and now it's simple because it's just these little things if I stay on it. 
So that's a great point you make up. But you, but so many people, I got to start all over. No, you just have to fix work. You know, I'll have some people like I had some people come back in my my treatment center and they like the guy that had two and a half years sobriety. Well, he started from the day he he lost his sobriety. He that he relapsed. He doesn't yeah. he doesn't do all that stuff before that. He already fixed all that. Yeah, that's already been exposed to the light. He just got to get the the recent stuff. Since, since the relapse and then fix those things. That's great. Well, tell me what advice would you give to our listeners, you know, that want to get through like addiction? And I actually, like I said, I'm, if you're dealing with people with addiction or even just going through it myself, it was such an empowering program to go through. I mean, I don't have any really strong addictions, but there's always things that we're trying to improve and get over. And I really feel like it's just a helpful program for that. What advice do you have to those listeners? Uh, to submit. If you think you may have a problem, you've got a problem. Yeah. And, and, and the submission is huge. And, and if you have a problem, you know, I had plenty of people I work with that's really struggled with the God thing. And the ones that would submit, and they don't, it doesn't have to be my God. It's as they understand them, right? Mm-hmm. But submission is so much. I mean, I've worked with a lot of people that are, I mean, Quoting the Bible, quoting whatever scripture, right? And they're very, very, very religious. And they're giving sermons in my groups and all this stuff, and they're quoting scripture. You guys got to repent and do that. You know what I mean? But are they submitting? You know, oh, yeah. and and I did. You know, are they doing the steps? That's the submission. You have to submit to the twelve steps, and you have to do them thoroughly. You can't skip them. And, you know, I, I would do a check-in every day with my, when I was doing the, the groups at the treatment center. And obviously I don't work there anymore, but I would go every day. Where are you out on the steps? Where are you out on the steps? And I get, some people get mad at me. You're not supposed to do that. You're not their sponsor, blah, blah, blah. I said, I want to see progress, guys. <laughs> you do what you want. <laughs> doesn't say you, doesn't say you have to have a sponsor in the book. It's very helpful. And so some guys would say, well, I'm on step four. I said, great. The next day I'm on step four. So after a week, I said, look, dude, you've been telling me you're on step four. Have you done anything on step four? Well, I've been thinking about it. I said, you haven't done anything on step four. And so I know people that have been on step four for nine months. Wow. There's no reason to drag it out. That's not submission. you got to get through it. And, and, it, and it can be hard. When you when you start writing everything down you've, you've ever done wrong, it brings up some self-pity. It brings up resentment. It brings up fears and your compulsion to act out increases. <laughs> so you want to get through those as quickly as you can. And if people, you know, I, that one guy in particular, I was just talking about, I said, okay, we're ending group early and I want you to sit here for 15 minutes and write down, start writing your list of things you've done wrong. Well, the next day I said, how'd it go? He's like, I got a ton written. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you started. Yeah. So well, you have to, that's the thing. Submission, submission, submission. Please submit to the steps. You can be freed. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that's, that's um, what I'm writing it down and getting through those those things quickly is kind of it goes back to kind of what Audrey was saying before. I mean, that's putting your spouse in there, but that um, codependency. And I think sometimes that we can be codependent with ourselves, like we hang on to it because it's, I don't know, feeding something that's, you know, there. Does that make sense? Like, like that you mm-hmm. can, you hang on to it and you have a hard time submitting or writing it down. I, I think that just, that just is another layer of transparency. You know, it's different than thinking about it than it is writing it out and seeing it with your eyes and, you know, feeling you it with your hand it as you're writing it out. But I kind of feel like that 
we can somewhat be um, more dependent on that ad- addiction, but it's kind of, it goes with that, correct? I mean. Yeah. And they say to write it down specifically in the book, you, you can't not do it if you want to be healed because having in your head, you can't remember everything and you're not thorough. And generally you think about the same thing over and over again. And when you start writing and you go through your life, you're like, okay, when I was five, I did this, when I was six, you know, and you start going through it then you start getting, and then other things, it triggers other things you did. And then you keep writing and writing, but in, unless you do that, it won't work. It just, it doesn't. Oh yeah. So For sure. can be a, a huge chilling process. I mean, like I said, I'm just going through those steps. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you and find out how to, you know, maybe they're, they have an addiction or they're dealing with a spouse with addiction. How do they get a hold of you? And you know, what's your contact information? Well, they can just go to adoreyourspouse.com and uh, under addiction, there's a free coaching call. If they, they want to talk about it, they can do that. There's also a contact us button on there below the, the, the main header. There's a Facebook icon, a YouTube icon, and a, an envelope. That envelope goes right to the contact us page and you can send me an email. And those come directly to me, by the way, and I'll, I'll respond to you. But that's probably the easiest way. Also, we have the addiction recovery groups that we're starting here at the first of February. And so they can learn more about there. We got a, we got a page on the site to talk about the, the addiction recovery groups. Um, I, I work with, I'm with individuals and with uh, groups as well. And they can do both if they want. They can try out one or the other or whatever they want. But definitely, they just have questions. They can email or me or, or they can they can set up a free call. That's awesome. Well, and I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this really difficult subject. I mean, especially to be as transparent you are about your own story, but then also to be so willing to help other people. And maybe that's part of your own healing, <laughs> but for sure. It is. It's kind of selfish, isn't it? But yeah, I, and it, it's actually easy on this side. Before I was recovered, it was, I couldn't tell anybody because it was so embarrassed. You know, I was so ashamed of who I, of what, I, what I've been doing for so long. So yeah. you're very welcome. Thanks for yeah. having me. Again, we've been talking with Blaine and Audrey Rinlesbacher. You can watch his journey, like I said in the bio, watch his journey to freedom and gain a lot of additional insights and help for your addiction by going adoreyourspouse.com. However, we're going to be sure to link all that information on our website as well, including the books that Audrey suggested. But thank you so much, Blaine and Audrey, for coming on and helping to light our minds on fire on this really important topic of addiction. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us, Rebecca. Thank you very much. (laughs) Awesome. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. To learn more about Blaine and Audrey Rindlisbacher, go to our show notes at theluminousmind.net. Be sure to become a subscriber to our free email list and help us to continue production of illuminating content by sponsoring us at patreon.com backslash theluminousmind to get exclusive content. Subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Google+, Pinterest, and now Instagram. To help us grow, consider these easy ways. Tell your friends about us, leave us a review, share our content. Tell us how we can help you so together we can continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education 